Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. You're listening to the Fish Untamed podcast, your home for fly fishing the backcountry. This is episode 61 with Rick Wallace on Japan, New Zealand, and Tasmania. I would love to hear... Uh, how you got your start in fishing and fly fishing specifically, because I think I saw maybe on your website that you kind of dabble in all kinds of fishing. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong on that. Yeah, look, I, I'm mostly a fly fisherman, but um, because living in Melbourne, it's a pretty urban environment and I, with kids, you know, I don't always have like big chunks of time to get out. So I do do a bit of lure fishing, at, um, you know, in the city here, which is um, there's some quite good fish to target right in the city. So I do a little bit of that, but given the choice, I'd always fly fish. I'd, um, in terms of how I got into it, like I, I grew up in um, down a sort of tiny, tiny little dirt road in the country, sort of three hours from Melbourne, and um, we had a, like a stream running through the property. It was just like a you know, 23 acres property, and we had a stream running through the property which actually had trout in it. So my old my dad had this sort of old fly rod that he'd had for for years, and I was just you know bored and started um, started um, casting it, and then um, started targeting the trout that we had in this little stream, and um, that was oh, probably when I was 10, I suppose, and um, terrible pun. But after that, I was, well, I was absolutely hooked. And there's, <laughs> where I grew up, there was plenty of, um, you know, like Australian trout fishing is okay. It's not, not brilliant, but um, mainland Australia, Tasmania is great. But, um, yeah, there was enough to sort of learn and develop and, and um, you know, sort of progress as, as time went on. So what kind of trout do you have down there? So brown and rainbow are the two, the two main ones. Um, mainland Oz, they get to, you know, th- a big fish would be sort of, I don't know, four pounds. You'd be really happy with that. Um, of course, in New Zealand and Tassie, you're talking much bigger fish, sort of 10 pounds, etc. It's quite good. It's okay, yeah. Do you have both species where you learn to fish? You're going after both browns and rainbows? Yeah, yeah. Um, different rivers will have them in different proportions. Some rivers will be brown brown only. Um, yeah, but most there's both populations present. Now, uh, where you are now in Melbourne, uh, do you get a lot of fishing opportunities pretty close to town or do you kind of have to go out into the country to find places to fish? Yeah, good question. I think the best, trout fishing, you have to drive an hour from Melbourne, um, sort of up into mountain range, uh, and probably two hours to access really good fishing. There's a lot of like uh, sort of mountain, tiny mountain streams with some really good you know, fishing that you can do with a two or three way. But then you get sort of two hours out and, and there's a few tail races, a few freestone streams that, that actually have quite good trout. Um, and right, the, the tail race is great because, it, it, as you know, Australia's pretty hot. Um, Melbourne gets hot in the summer, so the streams can heat up uh, temperature-wise. So um, the tail race is good in that respect because it's water's always cool and, um, you know, the fish, doesn't, the fish population don't suffer in the summer. And then the mountain, mountain freestone streams are good too. And we have some lakes, um, sort of about two hours from Melbourne too, which is, um, 
yeah, can offer good fishing. We tend to target those in the winter, though, to be honest. Uh, some people target them year-round, but they're, they're kind of a we, – we have a closed season on trout in winter, so we'll – in the rivers, so we'll go to tackle them in the lake in, in winter. Okay. Now, what about, um, like, warm water? Do you have do you uh, kind of focus on trout, or do you find yourself getting out for um, – I don't know what all species you have there, but, um, do, like, do you have anything apart from trout that you go after? Yeah, we've got um, southern Oz. There's a bunch of sort of uh, estuary fish or coastal fish that that we can target. Uh, a lot of them are um, they're not huge sport fish, not like you know tarpon or GTs or anything like that. But which are further, you know, you can further north in Oz, you get GTs and barramundi and all those all those sort of sexy fish that we're quite renowned for. But um, down south, they're just sort of good eating fish that can be you know maybe twenty inches long. So there's ones called um, snapper. Um, flathead um we have a bass species down here an australian bass which we target um estuary perch so that kind of fish yeah i i prefer trout personally but um if i want to catch something to eat for the family or whatever i'd go out in the kayak in the bay in melbourne and um target those those saltwater uh, fish that are really good to eat oh that sounds like a lot of fun it's great yeah yeah squid as well by the way um which are so so tasty we have um a calamari squid that you can catch um on the fly not on the fly, just with um, squid jigs. I don't know if you get oh, okay. them over there. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I was like, I've never heard of it. <laughs> Look, they go for anything. I, if you did put a big clouser down there, you, they'd probably go for it. But um, the jigs are really effective at catching them. Now, um, I know we're going to get into a couple different uh, topics, and I guess the topics are kind of divided in the countries because um, you mentioned uh, Japan, New Zealand, and Australia, I guess more specifically Tasmania. Um, yeah. But I, I want to hear kind of an overview of like why you have experience in all these places. Like what, what took you <laughs> to these <laughs> different different locations and allowed you to fish in these different areas? Yeah, great question. Um, look, maybe I'll tackle NZ and Tassie first and then Japan. So, okay. look, as I did more and more fly fishing um, in, in Oz, you, you always want to sort of do the next um, frontier. And New Zealand's so close to us. I mean, it's a two-hour flight. And, and that for, for people who like um, brown trout fishing for, or trout fishing for big brown trout, um, they have rainbows over there too, but um, the brown trout's the sort of key target. It's really is the mecca for that kind of fishing. It's... Um, what you have over there is like rivers where the population's not very high of trout, but there might be, you know, four significant fish in a kilometre, but they're all going to be six pounds plus, um, you know, some very, very big fish. So um, I've probably done, I don't know, seven or eight trips over to New Zealand, to the South Island of New Zealand, just targeting those those big um, brown trout. And it can be, it's a, you know, pretty brutal learning experience because you, you, they're very clever. They don't get to that size by being stupid and being caught by everyone. Um, and you can walk for, the typical day over there is you'll walk for sort of, I don't know, 10K up the river um, and maybe cast to sort of 10 fish, um, get maybe four of them to eat and maybe land two, <laughs> depending on your, <laughs> your skill level. So people do a lot better than that. But that's sort of my typical day over there. Um so, um, you know, you've only got to be a little bit off and you'll come home empty-handed. But if, conversely, if you're on your game, you, you, you'll you end up with sort of four fish that are not out of place on a, a trophy wall. It's all catch and release, I should add. But um, but you'll end up with, you know, sort of four pretty big fish. Um, very exciting fishing. It's all sort of sight fishing. So um, we try to do it in pairs, actually. It's better in pairs if you can have one person spotting and the, um, to just try and get a bit of elevated ground above the river. The river's all super clear and then look down into the river and point out where the fish is to you, to the fish fisher person who's sort of at river level. You tend to have sometimes a bit of glare and, you know, you can't always see. So you'll be saying, look, you know, it's three rod lengths near that little rock um, that you can see in the middle of the stream and then cast it out there and hope he hits it. Um, and Tassie, so that I can talk more about NZ depending on um, your interest level, but Tassie is, again, like it's close to home and it's famous uh, in this part of the world for incredible fishing and um, what you have. The thing that's super special about Tassie is in the centre of Tassie you have thousands of lakes on a high plateau, which is, um, I don't know, 3,000 feet above sea level or thereabouts and quite large. And in all of these lakes, there's populations of um, large brown trout and you can, um, it's sort of wilderness area, so you can park your car and, and depending on which lake you pick, you can pick one that's two hours walk and, you know, you do go there and back in a day or you can just take your tent and, um, and your gear and your food and just go for a hike for 10 hours or whatever and stay out for a few days. Um, and, you know, you'll hardly see another person. You might see another few anglers. Um, 
but it, it's genuinely a wilderness fishery. It's again, it's tough. You know, some that you could go out for three days and finish with three fish, or you know, come home with thirty. Again, catch and release, but um. It, it's very, yeah, it's tricky and it's um, the weather can change in an instant, And uh, but it's, it's just a beautiful part of the world, a wonderful part of the world to fish. Yeah, I really, really enjoy it. Do you uh, happen to know if there were any native species of fish in these waters before browns and rainbows made their way in? Like, I know here we had, like, yeah. we have cutthroats, but a lot of their, their water has been kind of taken over by non-native species. Um, do you have any native species that were kind of pushed out by, by the introduced ones or was it, were they barren? Yeah, no, very, very much so. There was like um, those fish have been hit really hard. There was like uh, blackfish. Um, I don't know what the scientific name is, but that was the, the prevalent fish in in streams in Victoria and I think other parts of Australia as well. That's you'd barely find that fish now because the, the trout have taken over. And similarly, there's other fish like minnows called galaxids and stuff which have been smashed pretty hard by the trout. Um, yeah, so the trout's been the successful introduced species has sort of taken over those streams really. Uh, we have, um, you know, big native, bigger native fish like Murray cod and um, those sort of fish, which are, you know, still okay. Um, they sort of occupy different water to the trout, slightly warmer um, water, more downstream from the trout. You know, the alpine streams are the trout are the dom- now the dominant species. Do you know if there's any sort of um, like push to get those native species back in? Because that's like a big thing here. Is we we love catching brown and rainbow trout, but there's also a lot of us that really are sad to see them take over areas that they weren't historically in. Um, and there's been kind of a push to bring back the native fish. Um, but I know that that it's also always in conflict with people who just want to go out and catch a, catch a rainbow trout, you know? So has that been uh, talked about at all? Yeah, there is that kind of debate, but I think it's, it's too late for the, the, those smaller um, species and, and there's not the kind of recreational angling interest in them. Um, the where, where we have the debate here is around, um, whether we should stock the natives more intensely, more intensely, and and sort of allow them to reclaim the trout water. So that's so the native species, more like Murray cod, I suppose, will be the predominant one. Um, so you'll have people who say, look, you know, trout are effectively vermin, and we shouldn't be um, stocking trout. We should only stock natives. And then you'll have people that say, well, look, the upper portion of the river is given over to trout, so let's make that a keep that a good trout fishery. Uh, this is mainland Australia, I should say, in Tassie and New Zealand. Like no one would the trout's supreme no one it's a big tourism industry it's revered so they wouldn't they wouldn't do anything on in that on that front um the other thing we have over here is the european carp which is a huge problem so when it comes to sort of fisheries management that's the dominant issue it's a um, introduced species that's very damaging to waterways uh and is a huge biomass in the big rivers um so most people the one thing we can agree on is we need to get rid of these carp but we haven't found a way to do it yet i see I'd like to come back and get some more details on New Zealand and Tasmania, but um, again, just give me kind of a, an overview of uh, what brought you to J- to Japan um, yeah, and allowed okay. you to stay there and fish there for. I think I saw a couple months you you were there, or no, sorry, four four years, wasn't it? Yeah, four years. Okay, yeah, four I years. Was... That's even four months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, four years. It's um. So I was a journalist for in Australia for a long time, and um, the my kind of almost last job, I suppose, in journalism was to be the uh, Tokyo correspondent or the North Asia correspondent for the newspaper I was working working on um, at the time, The Australian. Um, so I went over there, you know, to cover Japan sort of culturally and economically, et cetera. And, I, I, you know, I packed my fishing gear almost as an afterthought, to be honest. I thought, um, you know, fishing over there would be on some pier, like, you know, shoulder to shoulder, like casting, you know, um, for, for, you know, the very few fish that be in the ocean there. But, um when I got over there, I uh, became friends with a trade commissioner who was a, a very keen fly fisherman, and and he, you know, opened my eyes pretty quick that there's some amazing opportunities uh, for fly fishing there. Um, if you think um, so, you know, we can unpack these as we go. But um, he showed me that you know, I was based in Tokyo and showed me that there's opportunities sort of within two two hours of Tokyo, and then the bigger opportunities which are in Hokkaido, the northernmost um, island of Japan. Um, so I, during my four years, I spent a lot of time um, fishing in both those areas. That's that's pretty cool. Now, would you say, just from your perspective, I know that New Zealand and Tasmania are probably a lot easier for you to access. Like, I'm sure you can you could take almost mm-hmm. an impromptu trip to either of those places. But um, as someone who has come from, like, out of the country to those areas, would you say that, like, one is easier than the other? Uh, I guess 
more between New Zealand and Japan uh, to go as an outsider and be able to make a fishing trip work without, you know, paying for a guide and everything, just trying to figure out the system, figure out where the fish are? Uh, Yeah, really good question. Um, New Zealand can work DIY or do itself easily. Look, it it is better with a guide, um, but if you choose your rivers carefully, I mean, there's some rivers where you can just swing, uh, swing wet flies or nymphs and, you know, you'll catch fish after fish or there's, there's some, a couple of hatch-driven rivers in the south um, where any fisherman, fish person in the U.S. is used to fishing, you know, mayfly hatches or catch fish. Um, I think where you need the guide is, or a partner or, or, or be pretty skilled is in that site fishing for the big fish in those rivers. Japan, um, mm, now because of the language barrier, I think it, you really do need a guide initially. Um also, um, Hokkaido, you have the issue of um, brown bears. Like, um, you probably look. I mean, Australians tend to be scared of bears. You guys are probably a bit more blasé about them over there. But um, there are a lot of areas with um, big brown bears. So, I, I I feel nervous fishing Hokkaido on my own. So, I prefer to go with friends or or a guide. Yeah, that's <laughs> <Whereas fair. New> <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to sort of go go on my own and just do it on my own because there's nothing that can hurt you. They don't even have snakes in New Zealand, would you believe? So. Um, there's literally nothing that can hurt you, but um, right. yeah. So and, and then Tassie, um, yeah. Look, Tassie is probably the the easiest. I think um, you know the lakes are, are a tough fishery, but there's rivers there that you can fish, and you don't need a guide. You, you don't need to be the greatest angler in the world. Um, yeah. So th- so they all kind of have their challenges. They're all can be done do itself, but just a day or two guided at the start of the trip would be my recommendation. All right. Well, do you want to, I don't know what makes sense um, in terms of getting the conversation set up, but do you think you just want to go through each of these places and just kind of talk about the fishing there and what goes into yeah. it? Why don't we talk about Japan first and I can come back to the, the other go- other other places and yeah. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, well, maybe we do it by spe- uh, species. I'll, I'll just tell you about my first trips to Hokkaido. Um, so I've, I met up with this... Um, Oh, let's do Tokyo first. So Tokyo, um, you know, it's 35 million people greater Tokyo. It's um, So the first fly fishing I did there was in ponds. They have these ponds where you, you know, um, go, and, go and catch these um, stock trout. It's, it's kind of, you know, just to scratch the itch. But then um, Tack, the guy, the trade commission I was friends with, took me up into the mountains and we'd, we'd, do, we'd just rent a boat and do some sort of sight fishing to rising rainbows in some reservoirs there. Um, that was great fun. But um, then he said, the next thing you need to do is come and um, try and get time and in Hokkaido, and I, I didn't even know this species existed. It's like um, I knew that there was rainbow trout there because I'd started doing reading about Hokkaido. Um, Hokkaido, to just to put it into context, is probably like for Japanese what uh, Alaska is for you guys. So um, in terms of it being a frontier, so it's a big island with only only by Japanese standards five million people there. So uh, it's snowbound for. Um, you know, nine months of the year, well, not nine, maybe eight months of the year, it's sort of under, under pretty heavy snow. It's right up north near um, Siberia. Um, so, um, and towards Kamchatka. So it's a pretty cold place. And they have this short, sharp summer. And um, during this sort of short, sharp summer, you get heaps of insect life um, coming out into the streams and this great um, terrestrial fishing for big rainbows, but there's also this time. And so I'll come back to the rainbows, but the time was the first thing that piqued my interest because I'd only heard of them being existing in, New- yeah, sorry, in Mongolia. That's that's what I thought too. Like I, I didn't know that until I saw you mention it in your document. Yeah. So I, I mean, where it's sort of this riverbound fish um, in the middle of nowhere, effectively, and big fish. And and um, no, they told me, no, it's like a sea run anadromous version of, um, of time. It's, it's its own species effectively. And um so we went up there and um, we, um, so I did, did a few trips up there. And <clears throat> again, it's kind of fishing where you'll go. So the place we chose to target these is like a little estuary um, in the far, far north of, um, of Hokkaido in a place called Sarafutsu. And um, it's, you'd sort of go out and basically there's two ways you could try to target them. You can look for the, they hunt, they basically hunt um, in the estuary, they hunt the bait fish and you can see them sort of boil and, and, break the water as they're hunting these bait fish. So you can sort of try to sort of stalk around the shallows of the estuary until you see one and then cast and put a cast out in front of it and, and, and try to get them that way. Or you can just um, Chiba, the guy I fish with, um, he's good good caster with double-handed rods. So he, he just blast out long casts over the whole river and basically strip back these 
either streamers or surface flies and just cover the water. So um, there were those sort of two ways to catch them. And the first, we, we just went up for a weekend the first time and um, the um, uh, there was, I think, five of us fishing, Tak and um, Shiba and a couple of Japanese friends. And we, I think we ended up with five fish over the course of the weekend, which is a great, great result for uh, for Timon. Uh, and the biggest, Tak got the biggest, which was 95 centimetres. Uh, oh, sorry, i got to talk inches here. Um, <laughs> about 40 inches. There we go. <laughs> so a really big fish. So the, the surface flies you're using, are they, I assume it's not like the, you know, beautiful dry fly for trout that you're going to leave sit uh, call me on the surface like would you be uh, disturbing the surface like almost like pike fishing i would assume with these like bigger predatory fish you've got to kind of make it enticing yeah yeah he's he really rips it it's like a gurgler sort of okay, fly yeah. and maybe about that long and just rip it through the um and make a splash and and they come up and take it off the surface okay yeah. it was um yeah amazing fishing he um yeah, but the fish, I'll send you a picture of the fish that Tack got that time. It's a beautiful, they're, they're just a gorgeous fish. So this thing was, like I said, 40 inches long and it's, um, they have like a pink um, glow to them. Not like a rainbow, not like a stripe, but the head and shoulders of the fish is sort of a really beautiful um, pink colour. And they're a big sort of thick set, uh, really nicely proportioned um, trout, trout sort of salmonid species. They're gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous fish. Yeah. Are, uh, are they like all over Hokkaido or is it a pretty specific like river systems that they come into? Very specific. There's only, they are a threatened species. So um, there's only really four, uh, four regions where they, they exist now. And um, I've only fished the one. There's a, the biggest river in Hokkaido, the Tesho River, they, they exist in that. They exist in a lake um, and they exist in Sarafutsu, um, which is a small system. And then a couple of other places. Okay. Um, yeah. Now, with them being threatened, is there are there any sort of restrictions around targeting them? No, no, unfortunately not. They're, they're sort of um, Japan's very advanced in some ways. We're very behind in others, and um, no, there's no real restrictions. Um, we were trying to get those introduced actually by um, sort of pressuring the local authorities a bit, but um, that sort of only goes so far, especially if, if you're the Westerner doing the pressuring. Right. But um, <laughs> Japanese friends trying to. Um, get that sorted but i think the best protection we felt was to sort of write about them and you know publicize them as a, as a sport fishing um, species because it encourages the locals to sort of value them more it's not not a very wealthy area of japan so the tourism is sort of meaningful um, and just encourage more people to fish catch and release for them because you can the locals can catch them and uh, eat them they're not a very nice eating fish but um but th there is that opportunity or they'll catch them on lure and not not care for them properly and stuff so um yeah i think it's at the point where the best management is to popularize them as a um, as a sports fish. Yeah, I could see that. So, what other what other species were you targeting up there? I I don't know where they are found in Japan, but I've seen lots of um, species of trout that are what is as far as I know are unique to Japan. Uh, I could be wrong about yeah. that, um, and I don't remember what all they're called. But there's at least a handful of like some uh, smaller, very pretty trout that I would almost liken to our brook trout here. Do you know which ones I'm talking about? I do, yeah, yeah. I, I'll, I'll just mention one more story about the the time, and then I'll come back onto those because, um, yeah, there there are quite a few of those, some small ones and, and larger ones as well. So, so the time and um, the first after I wrote the a piece for Fly Life, um, the magazine we have down down here, um, which people subscribe to around all around the world, it's a fly fishing mag, obviously. So I wrote this piece about the time and for that, and um, Nick Raygard, who's a um, Aussie guy who lives in New Zealand who makes fly fishing films, he made. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. He made the hatch, um, one called Hatched, uh, one called uh, Leviathan. Anyway, a bunch of fly fishing films. Um, this is what he was doing for a career at the time. And he um, he emailed me and said, oh, I saw that piece about the time and I want to come over and catch them and whatever. And we had a brief discussion about it and um, didn't hear anything more about it. And then he, he contacted me um, and he said, oh, I'm coming over in a week. This is like a few months later. And um, and I said, yeah, no worries, just we'll, we'll book a trip and um, – I've got three days, uh, come over. And um, he goes, yeah, I'm, I'm filming this um, movie called Predator, so I want to make sure that we catch them. And um, <laughs> I've got, well, there's no guarantees. You know, <laughs> we could go out there and catch nothing. <laughs> and um, he goes, yeah, yeah, we'll sort that out when it comes. And um, so I locked in Chiba to um, come with us for three days. And um, so Nick arrives at my doorstep and he's, um, 
he stays the night at my place and he, he had this picture in his mind of Japan being horrendously expensive and he said, listen, I'm I'm nearly broke. I've, my credit card's overdrawn and um, just finishing off this movie, so we've got to, this really has to be successful. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm in a world of trouble. Um, so we, first day one we got out at, um, it's it's so far north, it's light at four in the morning. So the first day we got out at four on the water and um, so we got, because we were so stressed about it, not catching anything for him and... Um, so first day we got two two seventy centimeters, which is oh god, my mass is terrible. But that's probably I don't know thirty inches. Not not a bad big fish. Not not big by time and time and standards, but big, big enough for me. And um, he, he so he come home and he's looking at the footage. And as we're back in the lodge um, or the hotel, and he goes, yeah, seventy. It's not really a predator, is it? And um, <laughs> so we get. We go, okay, uh, set the alarm for four the next morning and we went out and the next morning we caught um, uh, 280s um, and he was relatively happy with that. And then the final morning we caught um, 295s. There you go. So they were the predators. And he also got the footage of me missing. Um, there, there was a, the, they have a club over there, like an informal club for anyone who's caught one over one metre or, or 40 inches. And there was only like five five or six members in the sort of broader group that we fished with. And they had little badges there with the one metre fish on it. And um, I wanted to be the first non-Japanese to be admitted to the club. And um, <laughs> so Nick was there and we, we, we'd done this, we we're doing the stalking technique and we wander up the river and um, we'd found this spot where this one fish was just circling and he'd come in and he'd smash the bait and this little heron sitting on the... Um, because they know where the fish is going to come. And so when the fish comes up, the bait shower onto the bank and the, the heron comes down and eats, eats them. So you can sort of readily see where their ambush points are. Um, so we got this, we had this little tube fly and Nick caught it all on camera and um, we go up and I put the fly out there and I've seen him come in and he's done one one of these ambushes and then between ambushes, put the fly there and um, I was just talking to him and, um, gave it a bit of, and gave it a bit of a strip and then you see this like huge swirl on the camera and... Um, and the fish comes in and um, grabs it. It's the one meter one. This is the one I, I wanted. And um, so I'm fighting him for about, I don't know, five seconds or whatever. And then um, I had so much line out that <laughs> the, the loose line caught around the fighting part of the rod. Oh, no. And, <laughs> and just went completely, uh, just completely hard and then ping the leader snaps. And um, yeah, Nick caught the whole thing on uh, over my failure on camera, which he uh, very, very kindly put in the movie, which is, uh, I don't think I'll ever live down. But um yeah, so that was my – I got close to the one-metre club but never never got in it, unfortunately. Well, at least you got a good story out of it. <laughs> yeah. What was the name of that? You said the name of the movie was Predator? Predator, yeah. And where where can where can you view it? Uh, good question. I think it's um, – on his site, his, his, his company's called Gin, Gin Clear Media. Um, it is um, – yeah, or maybe on Vimeo as well. I think he started distributing his content on Vimeo as well. I'll, I'll send you a link um, – when we get off and um, for the best way to best way to find it. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to put it in the show notes and I'd love to watch it myself too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was fun. He did, um, there was nine chapters, I think, in that f- film, most of them in Australia, but some in um, different, various other parts of the world. Yeah, so that, that was the time. And um, the other species, um, maybe talk about the rainbows and then the more specialised species uh, after that. So, so the rainbows are huge um, fun. Um, in a sense, because I like dry fly fishing, so they, they for me, were equally as fun as the, the timing. Like, I, I wasn't mad keen on doing what Chiba, Chiba did, which was um, belting out the stripping wets and or gurglers or whatever. Uh, I'd much rather side fish. Um, so I, timing, I could do that with it when you see them boil, etc. But um, the rainbows are unbelievable. Like, most of the streams are um, sort of canopy forest up above, and you get, like... Um, aphids and caterpillars and everything dropping onto the onto the water so you're fishing with big stimulators or um chernobyl ants and that sort of thing and um just side fishing to these hugely powerful rainbows um you know that can be sort of 20 inches 25 inches really big fish well just and super strong as well and they're they're fussy as well um like new zealand the reputation of the rainbows it's pretty easy to catch and and not the preferred trout species because it's not as smart but um I don't know if that's – is that the perception you guys have with rainbows over there or are they kind of equally valued versus browns? Uh, I feel like overall the culture 
leans more toward liking browns. Um, but I think there's a variety of reasons. Some people say that they are more aggressive, like they'll chase down a big streamer um, versus a rainbow, uh-huh. uh, and they like that, or just that they get big and really vibrant colors. Um, I kind of say, I think I like them probably about equal, but I think it definitely does yeah. skew toward brown trout, and people tend to look at rainbows, and unless it's some really, really beautiful wild specimen, they're kind of like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Fair enough. <laughs> Except for the steelhead, I suppose, which seems to be pretty revered. Yeah, that's. I think that's considered kind of a completely different category. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah. Now, are these rainbows sea run? Because I, I wanted to ask that. Like, Are they almost some sort of version of steelhead, or are they just they're landlocked? Land, landlocked, I think, essentially. Okay. Yeah, look, I don't know if there's population in the river mouse or some of those, but I don't think so, no. And some of it's pretty tight water, like small streams and, um, yeah, with sort of bamboo and all sorts of plants over them and... Um, Lots of bear country. Um, yeah, Chiba would get um, pretty nervous. He'd always carry like two cans of bear sprays at some of these rivers. <laughs> and, um, I, I, I never saw one, to be honest. Like I saw the paw prints and stuff, but um, uh, yeah, never got uh, had an encounter with the bears over there. But um, yeah, they're pretty prevalent. Yeah, I could see that being uh, nerve wracking for someone coming from a place where bears aren't an issue and you don't have to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and the, uh, the other species I, I can touch on very briefly and um, then hand over for your questions. But uh, so the other species we ca- which we caught over there quite a bit was um, one called white-spotted char, which is like a native species only to Japan. It's, they call it amemas. And it's um, <coughs> a beautiful fish. Again, I'll send you a pic um, of it. And the, the famous hatch they have there is there's a two-week window on a lake called Lake Arkan where there's big, these big mayflies hatch that are, the sort of the size of your green drakes and this this hatch only occurs for two weeks um and um yeah we'd go up to the um that lake and then target those those fish for that hatch and they just get up on the surface and slurp down these these big mayflies um yeah really fun really really fun fishing uh absolutely gorgeous fish and what like what size are those roughly are we talking large like kind of like what the rainbows you're talking about or are they even larger than that uh, they're similar to the rainbows. Yeah, twenty. You can catch 20, twenty inch fish. They don't pull as hard um, as the rainbows. Uh, and you know, yeah, on the whole, if you if you got one sort of twenty inches, you'd be pretty happy. And there's a lot of fish that are smaller than that that are sort of fifteen inches. Some kind of like an average size trout. Yeah, I reckon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that that same fish exists as. Um, oh, I'm going to get the terminology wrong, but there's the two uh, really small. Um, trout species those beautifully colored ones um iwana and um the other name will come to me but they're very famous um fish that you uh fish for with tenkara or you can fish with two weights and and go up those mountain streams uh so the sort of smaller version of the amamas is one of those um yeah i think those are the ones i was thinking of yeah i didn't do much fishing for those i've got to say i've actually got the chart behind me i'll look up what which one it was this is like um, this is banished to my office. My wife won't let me put this on the wall in the house. <laughs> <laughs> but this has got all of the um, trout and salmon species of, of northern Japan. Um, so this white spotted char, that's this one here. Yeah, um, but yeah, like in its in its small version, um, I think it's along with these two. It's um, Oh, Yamame, that's the other one. Yamame and um, Iwana are the two tiny char species, one of which is this, the other one which is, I think, this landlocked salmon species. Uh, and they're the ones that people will go up into those sort of mountain streams and, um, and and fish for with the tiny tiny, tiny rod or tenkara and that sort of thing, which is good fishing too. It's very interesting apparently. They just take everything that's off the surface, so very visual fishing. Did you get to go after them at all? You said you didn't do much fishing, but do you... Did you get to catch either one? No, no. I, I, I saw them in the stream. Sometimes just go with uh, my kids and just um, hiking and stuff. And, you know, you'd throw a flick a little um, caterpillar or something into the water <laughs> and they'd just charge up and, uh, and eat it. But no, not fishing-wise. Yeah. Because I think when I got, got the window, I just wanted to try those, catch those bigger fish. Yeah, that makes sense. I think given the opportunity to catch a meter-long fish or one of the tiny ones, uh, assuming they're both native to the area, I think we'd all choose the 40-incher. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> I had two specific questions about Japan. Because um, when I was there, so I was in Japan a couple of years ago, but we went to ski. So I didn't get to uh, oh, do nice. 
any sort of fishing because we were there obviously when it was there were a couple feet of snow on the ground um but the two questions i had are about licensing and land access um so do you need a fishing license and if so is it a pretty easy thing to get and then also separately what's the access like is it pretty easy to find land to um access the water are you talking to private landowners Uh, what's what's the situation uh yeah good question licensing no um the, I don't. You, I don't think you need a license. We didn't need a license for any anywhere we fished. Um, the only exception would be there's pri- a lot of private fisheries like the lakes up in the mountains and stuff where you'll pay a day permit or Akan um, Lake. Yeah, you had to pay a day permit, which, which was sort of thirty dollars a day or something like that. Um, and access is pretty good. Um, like a lot of it's very built up country, so you'll see bridges and roads and um, things like that, so that you can access the waterway pretty quickly pretty quickly and easily yeah and um Okaida, there's not many people around you can just yeah get to the water with no problems okay so is it um like actually public land or is it just that landowners don't mind or like what is it just no one owns it what what's like why are you able to get down to the water so easily yeah i think it's yeah good question look i think it's it's ambiguous whether it's public or private in some cases but rural, rural japan's been so depopulated like people it's like people drawn into the big cities really um and um i think it's sort of you know you go up there and there'll be a lot of properties that are neglected or you know land holdings where there's no one there you can just walk through it effectively like yeah japan's a it's a pretty like impenetrable society in a lot of respects so i'm sure that there are logical answers to your um question but i reckon after living there for even for four years i only probably understood a quarter of it so (laughs) that's fair yeah i figured i mean it could be different and it's it's hard to imagine it outside of my experience which is that you know here there is a very distinct line between public and private land. And if you're on private land, that yeah. landowner is going to know and not want <laughs> you there. Uh, and I'm sure there's a lot of places where that's just not the case, but it it's so hard to picture being in a different, you know, a different realm where the perception is just different and the attitudes are just different about it. And I'm trying to put it yeah. into a box that I'm familiar with and it might just not apply to what I'm used to. Yeah, maybe. And I also think Japan's, I don't know, it's a very um, like face is very important and stuff so i think it, it even if you were going across property or whatever that you wouldn't be confronted you, do you know what i mean like i don't know everything sort of, sort of operates on innate understanding so like i'd go with chiba for example and he you know have in, in his head where you can go and where you can't go and what's likely to cause confrontation and what's not so i just sort of fall in with him but i don't think you're going to get into much too much trouble if, if you went up there on your own and you you sort of were fishing somewhere you, you weren't meant to be um the, I, people are going to be very polite about it and often the hotel or the lodge you're staying at or whatever would um they have these old inns there called rear cans which is where you'll stay a lot of times in the country um, and they'll have like a beautiful onsen bath and they'll they'll do sort of bed and breakfast and the, the owners of those can usually advise on access and you know who who's um, which what are the best points to access the water okay yeah i remember them being very polite there it, there weren't a lot of confrontations about anything um, I do no. remember that being a big part of the culture was just, you know, you might be corrected, but in, in a very polite way and none, not at all making you fear that you're going to be uh, attacked or <laughs> screamed no, at or anything like that. Not. How did you find the skiing, by the way? Or boarding? Were you boarding or skiing? Skiing. It was fantastic. And I don't even think we got, we didn't even get like a great week there relatively uh-huh. i mean it snowed a little bit but you know it, it could have snowed feet while we were there and it didn't it snowed probably a couple inches a day but it was yeah, still right. fantastic yeah where did you ski uh we did i think one day at niseko and then we did mm-hmm. a couple at um kororo and rasutsu and we liked Rasutsu. Okay. we liked yep. rasutsu the by far the best yeah good terrain isn't it there yeah it was a ton of fun it's kind of a dilapidated old resort <laughs> it, it is you know, like... <laughs> but, but in kind of a fun way <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah there weren't a lot of people yeah, there it was I, nice to to have something different from colorado which is you know the entire country is traveling to colorado to ski every year so it was nice to not uh, have lines yeah. and stuff yeah great yeah no this I, I love the skiing over there it's good in honshu as well um like the hokkaido gets the, the colder better snow but um oh. honshu gets the main island gets more snow um, oh i didn't know that yeah you get those big storms that come in off the, the sea of japan on the korean side um and um the first thing they hit those japan alps and they just dump heaps of snow it's like 
it, it was so funny where I'd been there where days where it snowed like 40 like centimeters so I'd go to back to inches but uh, you know like 15 inches 20 inches 25 inches like just day after day it's wow. like really good fun now uh, I guess this would be maybe a good transition to talk about New Zealand because um, I have not gotten to ski there but I'm thinking maybe you have if, if you're a skier yeah I have um, a few times it's good but it's it, it, it's not a patch on Japan to be honest it's this it's beautiful the mountains are beautiful there um, but they're in a bit of a uh, sort of rain shadow so you, you get you get snow but um, it's nowhere near as reliable um, and the infrastructure is not quite as good so there's some pretty some of the mountains up there you access that you can't stay on mountain um for conservation reasons that's how they want to manage it which is fine um so you have to drive up in the mornings and some of the bloody drives up there are very hair raising like on slippery roads and you're getting the bus up in the morning and yeah but it's gorgeous it's beautiful you get a lot of sunshine um and um but i think compared to the states the the quality of snow and the quantity is probably not not as good and certainly not as good as Japan. Uh, but the fishing is probably better than most places. If if, in, yes. if you're talking in terms of, uh, like you said, trophy quality, I know you can't keep fish, but um, the size, I if, if I think of giant trout, uh, New Zealand is probably the first place that comes to mind because it seems like you're either catching nothing or you're catching a giant trout. And, you know, we have the ability to catch big trout here, but most, most fish people are catching are probably between 10 and 18 inches or so. Um, and it doesn't yeah. sound like that's the case in New Zealand. It's like, Go big or go home. Yeah, very much so. They they um, yeah laugh at you for the, some of the fish that we are happy with in Australia. <laughs> it's like yeah, they just are not on the register over there. Yeah, it's no, it's they're phenomenal rivers. There's so many rivers and they're all crystal clear. Um, and they have some really good. They don't have big hatches, but they have um, lots of falls of cicadas and uh, insect like a. You have the same. You have cicadas over there, I think, don't you? Yeah, we just had a big big hatch. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah like right. one of the, I think it was called the Brood X. It didn't happen um, in my part of the country, but there was a huge cicada hatch earlier this year that was causing a big stir in the fly fishing world. And did it would deliver or was it sort of a bit of a fizzle? Um, honestly, I didn't pay too much attention to it because we didn't get them around here. Right. So it wasn't it wasn't that oh, relevant okay. to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Over there, with they, they um, yeah, every February, this I think it's peak season for those cicadas and, um, and they're there every year and um, the fish that's such fun fishing because you're casting a big sort of deer hair fly or foam or whatever and they come up from you know two uh, from a couple of yards of, uh, of water like you know say it's seven feet of water they'll just come up and take them off the surface um, and everyone falls into the trap of um, you because they, they take them quite slowly you often strike way too early so they have oh, yeah. you got to count to three before you actually set the hook but so it goes up and takes the cicada and Usually it's on that downward angle when you strike, hopefully. Yeah, it's hard to keep your nerve, though. Yeah, you mentioned or you asked if we had cicadas here, but actually that sounds um, more similar, just thinking of our equivalent of our uh, salmon fly hatch. Um, you know, like every uh-huh. every early summer, getting the big salmon flies coming off for just a couple of weeks. And while it's happening, the fish kind of turn their attention to these giant insects on the surface and they'll kind of just gorge themselves on it during that time. So that sounds kind of like our equivalent of what you're describing, I think. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that sounds sounds really good fishing too. Yeah, anything on the surface, I love. Yeah, and I can I can picture what you're talking about with striking early with those big fish that just slowly rise to the surface, and you can just see them coming up like a submarine, you know, rising up. Um, and you just can't keep your nerves together when that's happening. <laughs> yeah, they have. Um, they say in New Zealand, it's like um, oh, we're kind of still a um, Commonwealth country, so they say you've got to say God save the Queen <laughs> before you actually strike. Or you could sort of count one. To, I prefer to say, you know, thousand one, thousand two, thousand three, bang. Yeah. Oh, there's just one other good hatch over, or hatch or fall over there. There's a thing called the willow grubs that fall out of the trees. Um, they're like a tiny yellow. Um, we have them here too, they're, but they're green and they fall out of the trees and um, they just the trail lock onto them obsessively and um, they've, they feed, they come up and feed so rapidly and their window of vision's so focused that you, it's really fun to fish because you've got to you've got to literally land at centimeters or just a couple of inches from their nose um and um it's frustrating it'll tear your hair out sometimes but it's really really interesting fishing too because you can just see them they're only only an inch or two beneath the water just going up 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 and eating these uh, willow grubs as they fall off so is dry fly fishing really only a thing during these uh handful of specific hatches and the rest of it's kind of uh nymphing or what's kind of the seasonal schedule like? 
Yeah, good question. Early season, they were mostly nymph, um, and we'll do the same in, in um, Australian rivers. Australian rivers have probably better hatches, so we'll switch to dry as soon as the hatches, as soon as we were allowed, really, with the hatches all allow for it. Um, over there, yeah, they'll nymph through. So their start of the season is probably um, September, I think, is open season. Um, so it'd be a reverse of you guys. So September, October, November, they've generally been nymphing with an indicator. Um, and then you can catch big numbers of fish um, that way. Uh, early season, there's less fishing pressure. And then high, high summer rolls around and you're sort of starting to get some fish that are on the dry. And, and you know, if you, what, you'll take it on a fish-by-fish fish basis. So you'll um, see the fish feeding. And um, if he's nymphing, you'll just be going side to side, side to side. And, um, you know, if you, and you're targeting with a nymph usually. But if you think it's the fish is sometimes coming up and taking something or, or even if he's just close enough to the surface, you, you can... Sometimes throw it dry, just try it anyway. Um, and if, if he doesn't come up, just switch to the nymph. But, um, yeah, nymphing's probably the most, if you want to get numbers, it's probably the the most logical, particularly early in the season. That's so interesting um, just because, I, like, I do sight fish occasionally. Um, but for the most part here, and maybe you can fill me in on Tasmania or, or Australia in general, um, you're kind of casting out to fish that you don't see. You're looking for good water that would hold fish. And occasionally you might see one mm-hmm. and be able to say like, oh, I see that fish rising. But normally you're looking for rises, not a specific fish and whether it's rising. But it yeah. sounds like in New Zealand, you're kind of walking, walking, walking until you see one and then doing whatever it takes to catch that fish. And then I assume walking, 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 and then assess again when you see the next fish almost individually for each one with a lot of downtime in between. Is that a kind of an accurate way to describe it? Yeah, so NZ very much so. And if you to the point where if you get a cloudy day, because uh, you get with, when you've got that cloud that you get that grey light off the off the water and it's you can't see. It's it, it means you're going to really really struggle unless you can find somewhere where there's a um, bluff or a cliff when you're looking into the water and it's about on the other side of the water is a dark big dark mass. You can actually um, see into the water. So there's um, so that's one option if it's cloudy. Um, and the other option is to fish like a spring creek where you are like just seeing that you can see the rises um, or, or just find somewhere where you can fish the water as, as you guys are doing in your part of the world or, or in, sometimes in Australia we'll fish the same way as well. I mean, it's like um, you've got to fish the water as well. But NZ, it's like the, fishing the water isn't that productive because there's a lot of water with no fish in it. Um, but where the fish is, it's a big fish. So it's... Yeah, I think your river selection is pretty critical when it's um, windy or um, or overcast. Now, what do you prefer? If you, if you could only do one of these two things, uh, what would you do? Would you rather uh, be in a river that there's barely any fish, but when you do find one, it's it's like the fish of your life and you're kind of hunting it? Or do you prefer kind of fishing the water and having lots of opportunities at maybe smaller fish, but you can kind of cast the whole time, you can be fishing the whole time and not worry about blowing your only opportunity of the day? <laughs> that's a really good question and um it, look as long as it's side fishing i'm not that fast which one so like willow grubs i love fishing that hatch um because you can you get lots of shots you get the best of both worlds you're sort of sight fishing and seeing the fish but you also get probably more shots than like a typical walking up a typical freestone river yeah but the size of the the fish um that you get from the sort of you know the hardcore sort of um, polaroiding um you know five shots a day sort of fishing the size is is huge so look at one of those days that if it's a still um clear day and they're taking off the surface and you end up catching some that's probably the pinnacle but there's for every one of those there's a few that you just get skunked as we'll say over <laughs> here come home with nothing and <laughs> yep. just tales of hard luck so maybe a little bit of both then it sounds like and mayfly hatches and stuff i like fishing those as well um trying to sort of um clue into what they're um what they what they're uh, eating in the hatch and what phase they have a couple of rivers in nz where in new zealand where there's hatch driven fisheries there's a famous one in the south called the Matara, um which has really good mayfly hatches so um yeah that's that's a great river to fish an easy river in so if you nymphed it, it's easy. You'd catch like heaps of really decent fish in a day, but dry fly can be tricky, but still very productive. And how does Tasmania then compare to New Zealand? Because I think it's easy for people maybe coming from the States to see them on a map and say they're kind of right next to each other. Uh, you know, globally mm-hmm. speaking, they're, they're right next to each other. Um, 
Yeah. Are they, I know you mentioned that New Zealand's a lot of these rivers with sparse fish um, and Tasmania has some like uh, the high plateau lakes. So are they, are they at all similar um, due to the proximity? Are they basically completely separate fisheries that have nothing to do with one another? And you wouldn't even know that you're basically right next to the other island. Uh, yeah, good question. I think they're similar only in the quality of fishing. So if you can imagine like New Zealand's like a really new landform, like uh, jagged mountains, earthquakes, etc., and um, sort of like the Rockies, if you picture the Rockies um, in that sense, like, and, um, you know, it's crystal clear. It's um, whereas Australia's a very old landform, heavily eroded, it's sort of forested, really, really heavily forested. And um, and the, the rivers probably flow through some farming country as well and they're more nutrient rich and support a higher head of head of fish um and um yeah so they're kind of the fishing environment's quite different um between the two and new zealand's sort of ultra remote uh, especially down south as well so so not that many people most of the people we see will be anglers to be honest which is a bit annoying sometimes uh, because that mode of fishing like there's no point following someone up else up a river you, you know once you do that you're done like the fish are um put down for the day right. like if you and i fish a 20k stretch there'd be no point coming behind us someone coming behind us fishing it for that day maybe tomorrow but um yeah and um so i suppose that the remoteness is the other key in those alpine lakes in tassie and new zealand there's there's that kind of remoteness thing and the size of the fish and the limited recruit, recruitment i suppose also like you've got like some of those lakes where there's no spawning um stream that's where you get the big trophies because um you know there's there's not much replenishment of fish so the fish that are in there again coming back to the sort of biomass are, are big you know they're you know they're going to be really big i had a question about tasmania based on something that you mentioned earlier uh you talked about like you drive your car and are you talking about a rental car here or are you able to like ferry your car across to tasmania ah uh, good question yeah we when we go we take the car usually um on the ferry there is a, a car ferry that goes across it takes about 14 hours i think it, go, it mostly goes overnight so you leave at dinner time and and you wake up early in the morning and you're in tassie and you're ready to go okay uh, but you can rent a car as well yeah and the other question i had was you mentioned camping up there uh what's the camping situation are you able to just park your car and walk up in and pitch a tent by these lakes or are there specific designated areas that you have to go to what how do you do that uh they're both really well set up for camping uh you can rent a Renting a van is pretty popular in New Zealand, like a caravan or RV or whatever you want to call it. Um, so people will do that and they'll drive around the south um, and you can pretty much park and sleep wherever you like. Um, if you want amenities, there's heaps of little camping grounds that you can um, just pay, you know, $15 a night or whatever and, and stay there and then you have the benefit of a shower, a toilet, a kitchen, etc. Um, and uh, there's also like lots of national park sites where you can just, I think free basically, you just pitch a tent and, um, you know, make your own um, uh, food, etc. The only thing you've got to be a bit careful of in Australia is um, bushfire. Sometimes it's we have seasons where you can't um, light a fire um, because of the the, the risk of um, fire getting out of control. I don't know if they have that so much in New Zealand. It would be definitely a thing in Tasmania and certainly in mainland Australia. Now, does Tasmania have the uh, creepy crawlies that? Australia is famous for for anyone coming from the rest of the world and and thinking that everyone or everything in Australia can kill you need you <laughs> yeah yeah they do um <laughs> look they're not that bad the main things are snakes to be honest like the spiders like I mean yeah I see spiders in Australia and people don't like them but um I look you know, they don't kill many people and um <laughs> but the snakes are yeah you can't there's no getting away from the snakes they do like the same areas that trout like like you know grassy riverbanks and etc um yeah you'll see them um and they're they're a bit scary but um just wearing it means you have to the only real thing is it means you have to wear gore-tex waders through through summer mm -hmm. okay and sometimes that can be a bit nasty um look much better than the sort of old days of the rubber waders right. and stuff but um, <laughs> but the gore-tex is good but um but in new zealand for example they'll um wet wade uh, in shorts and um most of the, most of the summer but we won't do that here because of the snakes and same in Tassie. Yeah, you'll see a lot of snakes, but the, for the most part, they, they won't come after you or anything. It's just um, if you step on them by mistake, they'll bite you. But um, yeah, 
they're not super aggressive. Yeah, we've kind of got the same same thing here. Um, you know, like we wet weight here all summer long, but I know that um, I've got a buddy down in Georgia who wears waders year round because he's like it's just so dense with the vegetation and there's there's snakes in in the vegetation that you'll never see until you step on them. Uh, so now it's yeah. a big thing down there. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's a, yeah, New Zealand's got all the luck, I, I reckon. Like no zero snakes, <laughs> big fish. Right. <laughs> so um, I guess just finishing up um, with Tasmania. Anything of note about the fishing there? Uh, I know we kind of talked about what made Japan unique and what made New Zealand unique. Mm-hmm. Um, if you had to describe Tasmania to somebody uh, and maybe sell them on it, like what? Why would someone want to come to Tasmania to to go fishing? Yeah, I think there's three things. So there's there's that that plateau, um, which is just fantastic fishing, and like you can feel like you're basically on the moon, effectively. You don't so we won't see any other people. It's a really special experience. Um, then the other two things they have is they, they have these trout that do this thing called tailing. So um, on those highland lakes in the morning, um, before first light, those fish will come in into the right into the margins of the lake, and they'll eat um, these snails. And what they what they do is they put their nose down, and then you can see the tail come up. So ideal session over there we, we fished um a lake called lake fergus and friend and i uh, a couple of seasons ago and we hiked in for 10k and backpacks and everything and um so the first morning we get up and it's like all you can see around the perimeter of the lake is this at four in the morning is all these tails and um you you basically um so you know where the fish is and you basically just got to creep up to the water and then just cast like really really accurately but in in a way that's delicate enough to not to spook them because it's it's still and it's glassy and any false cast bang they're, they're, they're gone so um yeah yeah and you've also got the time pressure so you get this sort of because once the light gets up they'll they'll go back out into the center of the lake and um yeah so there's a tailing fishing which exists there um which is just superb um and trout are not really known to do that anywhere else so i've never seen it happen anywhere else and that i fished um and they're they're pretty big fish as well so that I like the tailing. And for people who like fishing big lakes with boats, they have this um, fishing over there where you can, they have a couple of large lakes in the, on that central plateau and they get big waves whipped up and you can go out there and, and Polaroid these fish in, in the waves. They call it shark fishing because a lot of them are quite big. Um, and you can sort of use the waves and wind lanes on the lake um, to try and target these these big fish that are sort of working these wind lanes. That's I, I haven't done it myself, but that's another unique and, very popular um, bit of fishing about Tasmania that you can do in Tassie. Yeah, these all sound like very distinct. Uh, I, I guess you could even call Japan, like we're talking about kind of like different islands, you know, um, mm. you know, different islands kind of roughly in the same longitudinal area of the world and all completely different yeah. in terms of uh, like what fish are there and what the fish are doing there. Because, I mean, even it sounds like Tasmania and New Zealand have the same species, but they act completely differently, uh, you know. Yeah, get they these do. tailing lake fish versus the giant uh like solo new zealand trout that just grow really big and um yeah it's just like it's crazy how they can be so close geographically but be completely separate in terms of how they behave even if it's the same species yeah yeah it is yeah it's amazing it's a good way to look at it actually uh, yeah i hadn't thought of that but um yeah it's true they, they are genuinely unique um behaviors and, and sort of methods of fishing just to just to wrap up, I saw that you have um, a website, and you wanted to mention your uh, hook size or hook gauge tool. Oh and I, yeah, I, t- I took a look at it, uh, but I want to ask you more about it, and and also just have you uh, plug your website. Yeah, no worries. Um, yeah, so the website's just a bit of a kind of passion project, I suppose. Um, covering covering both um, uh, gear gear fishing, as you'd say, as well as fly fishing. Um, so I um, um, basically one of the things I want to do with the website was. Um, create this tool so because I, I tie flies i'm not the greatest fly tire in the world but i do like to tie my own flies because some of these hatches you get over here it's difficult to buy um the right flies for them so you're tying your own flies uh and what used to really annoy me was having to jump on the internet and try and go through those old hook conversion charts you know if you tie with tmco and you've run out and you go oh god i've only got these camisards is that the same as you know the um daiichi xxx or whatever so um i got this um so I got all these the charts together, and I got this Russian programmer guy on on the internet, and um, he created the tool, <laughs> and um, really really clever guy, and um, he just like built it as a plugin in a day. So we we put all of the data we could find from these charts, and it's not perfect at this point, uh, but we put it into this this tool. So you, if you want to go on there now, it's on the website's tacklevillage.com, 
and there's search for the tool. Um, if you want to, so there's two ways you can use it. You can either, if you're tying a terrestrial fly or whatever, you can select terrestrial from the dropdown and it'll give you the, the makes of hook that would suit a tying a grasshopper or a, emerge, a you know, curved emerger or a streamer or whatever. Uh, or you could go in there and say, this is what I normally tie, TMCO 100, you know, standard dry fly hook, uh, but I've got no TMCO. So then it'll, what it'll spit out is the same uh, same fly in, you know, Orvis, um, Daiichi, Dairiki, or all the other brands. So, and people keep telling me um, that I need to add um, a few brands. I need to add Fulling Mill, Firehole, Sticks, and um, a few other brands. So when, when I get time, I will go back and add those brands. But um, yeah, at the moment, there's probably, I don't know, eight or nine of the main brands on there. I might have to use this because I'm also not a very experienced fly tire. Um, it's something I pick up in the winter and then I tend not to do much the rest of the year. Um, but I've, I've got like a book that I follow and, you know, I'll go through the patterns and they'll tell you what hook to use. But, uh, you know, I don't always have that specific hook. So I might be using that tool to figure out, translate it to, okay, well, I've got, you know, this brand of hook. Uh, what's the closest thing to what they've got in this book that I'm re- reading through? You sound exactly like me. And that's that's the, the very re- first use case that we built it for effectively. Yeah, was that reason. Because you, you look up a pattern and it says a brand that you don't use. So what are you going to do? I mean, yeah. that's almost, I know this is kind of a tangent, but that's, that's a frustrating thing in fly tying just outside of hooks too. You know, it calls for very specific material, like this exact color, mm-hmm. this exact... Uh, type of material even down to the brand sometimes and you're like I've got you know what I picked up at the fly shop earlier today so how can I make this work <laughs> and I feel like yeah yeah you gotta improvise yeah you, yeah you gotta yeah you gotta figure out the closest thing and hope I mean at the end of the day the fish probably don't care that much if you tied it according to the recipe <laughs> yeah yeah I know yeah and you could even improve the fly I suppose accidentally yeah but uh, but I found with the hooks it's, it does matter like I was tying these clink hammer um flies like a sparse um, Lee Hackle fly for Tassie and I tied I thought oh curved hooks I've got some curved hooks and I just tied them on these hooks but they turn out to be like grubber hooks and of course I cast my fly out and they just sink straight <laughs> to the bottom because of what it's like because I wasn't a real you know you can get really nerdy with all this stuff and and I probably sound like an idiot but I tied it in like 2x heavy which is like um the wire is much um heavier gauge so of course it sinks so yeah, and now I've put in the clean camera hooks in the tool so that you don't make the same mistake I did and waste a whole bunch of material on, on dry flies that are going to sink. Right. <laughs> Which is not much good to it. Unless you're going for an emerger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, Rick. Well, um, remind everyone what your website is and if they want to find you on social media, um, where's a good place for that? Yeah. Uh, okay, so the best place, is, so the website's tacklevillage.com, just um as, you, as it sounds, um, and the tool, if you want to access the tool, it's um, linked from the top right. I think I've got a, a tab called Tools there. And, anyway, I'll send you the URL for the tool. Um, and, um, yeah, if you want to find us on social media as well, the only other property we've got is um, Facebook, uh, which is just Facebook uh, forward slash Tackle Village. And um, I have a YouTube channel as well um, where I put some of my fly patterns and various other bits and pieces. Again, you probably just search for that under Tackle Village. Um, yeah, so that's, yeah, that's me. That's how to find me. Um, yeah. And, uh, if you need to reach me, uh, want to ask questions about fishing in Japan or anyone wants to ask about, um, Tassie, Japan or New Zealand, I'm happy to, happy to help out as much as I can. Um, the other thing I should tell you too, is, um, I don't have any relationship with these guys, but they're just friends. Um, there is a good, um, English language tackle store guiding operation in Japan called Trout and King. Um, and I might give you the link to them as well, just because, um, you know, you've been over there skiing, you sort of know what it, you, it's, it's really, the language barrier can be, um, can be difficult. So it's good to like, even if you only fish with the guide for one day or something like it, at least it puts you on the right path. So I think it's probably useful for me to just give you that link just in case people want to, um, you know, go over to Japan, it probably is good to just have a contact that you can get started with. Yeah, I was actually shocked at how much the language barrier came into play in Japan. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe this is just me being, you know, America-centric, but I just kind of assumed that English would be fairly common over there, just in, you know, another first world country mm-hmm. that probably does a lot of business with the U.S. Um, and I was really surprised mm-hmm. at uh, how little English people spoke, um, even in Tokyo, but even more so up in Hokkaido. Mm-hmm. It, it just was not very common. It was a lot of sign language. <laughs> yeah, even in tourism, hey, there's not, yeah. It's at a lot of 
Japanese are very self-conscious about their English, and um, so if you write it, sometimes that that you'll get a better connection that way. But yeah, no, you're right. It is difficult with the language barrier, and Jap- Japanese is a very hard language to learn. Um, like I can speak a little bit of Japanese, but I'm by no means have a conversation with any degree of sophistication <laughs> in Japanese. Yeah, the, the the plus side is they're very nice about it, so you know, no hard feelings. They mm. no one can understand each other, but <laughs> there's a lot of mis miscommunications yeah. and and really tr- struggling to convey something with your hands that you just can't get can't get across. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The, the fishing people are very generous over there, though, too. Like, um, I um, they're, they're really good. Two things: they're really good fly tires, and they've adapted a lot of Western patterns for the for their own. Um, fisheries the fish they've tied with a lot of cdc and make some really innovative flies and and the fish are really selective i remember fishing alongside a guy a japanese guy and, um he was catching fish after fish rainbow and char uh, and i was just catching nothing and um <laughs> it's just the same same spot and after an hour he came over to me and just tapped me on the shoulder and he gave me one of his flies and look all it was was the elk hair caddis but tied with instead of the antron dubbing or whatever it was just peacock curl under that i think i had a cdc underwing and just those two changes was enough to sort of trigger the, the feeding response and and decides to put his fly on and then just hooked up straight away <laughs> and it's always fun to find those those local patterns that are tied for that area that's always a treat yeah 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 exactly and and i'm sure he sat there i wish he told me a at the start of the right. end, he's, he's thinking would be, oh, I don't want to embarrass this guy or. Yeah, yeah. don't want to patronize. But thankfully, <laughs> well, I'll, uh, I'll link to all these things in the show notes. Go ahead and send over any uh, links you have. Otherwise, I can try to look them up um, and share them uh, Great. to that to your website and uh, the uh, outfitter you mentioned there. Um, I'll get those all linked up. But I appreciate you coming on and thanks for spending your, your morning, my evening with me. <laughs> Yeah, no worries. Thanks for the opportunity, Katie. It was great. Um, love the podcast and uh, and what you're doing. It's terrific. So, um, yeah, well done. And, um, yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Uh, don't forget to head over to the website, fishuntamed.com, for all episodes and show notes. And also, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. That'll get my episodes delivered straight to your phone. And also, if you have not yet, please consider going over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating or review. That's very helpful for me, and I'd greatly appreciate it. Um, Other than that, thank you guys again for listening, and I will be back in two weeks. Bye, everybody.